0: Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock, lead pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario. We talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeelman, and today we're going to talk about the dangers of the social credit system. And so Aaron, maybe to start off the show today, you can introduce our listeners to what the social credit system is? What is it? Where did it come from?
1: Well, I'm kind of learning about this myself. So I certainly don't want to posture myself as an expert in everything to do with the social credit system. It has been around for quite a long time, but I think it is um, being discussed a little bit more in light of people's concerns about the economy. You know, here in Canada with the Closure of businesses, for example, in Toronto, many businesses being closed for over six months now. And the uh, rise in inflation, the dropping of interest rates, the rise in commodities. You know, there's a lot of discussions, even in Christian circles, about economics. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, typically when we talk about economics, we talk about saving, giving, spending. And that's about it, you know. But I I think Christians need to educate themselves more broadly on some of the economic theories that are being discussed in in broader culture. So, of course, in China, which is thoroughly and robustly communistic, they have a a, a kind of a social credit system which, which involves a financial component, but it goes beyond that. So in China, there's sort of this good boy list bad boy list that the government is experimenting with in various large cities around China. This has been in the works for probably more than 10 years, but in the last few years has been experimented with more deliberately. And the idea is, is that it's a little interesting to wrap your mind around, but the idea is that a person gains social cred. We understand this word cred, so, uh, like street cred. They gain social credits or, or social credibility, credit, based upon a series of factors. So the government basically monitors you, tracks you, evaluates you. And based upon your social performance, you then have access to certain jobs or promotions or maybe political opportunities, et cetera. Even, even the ability to travel uh, is tied to your social credit. So, for example, you could buy a ticket to fly to, I don't know, from Beijing to Toronto and be turned away at the Beijing airport because your social credit isn't high enough. So what, what are some things that they would look for? Well, pretty much everything. Um, you can get on the blacklist. Or the white list, the blacklist would be: oh, you're late for work, or you play your music too loud, or you know you waste time, or you don't sort your garbage properly, and uh, you don't recycle. So then you're on the blacklist, and that could take years for you to get on the white list. And the white list would be while well, you donate to charity, you speak well of the government, these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So you know when um, young people start to look at buying houses or cars in Canada. They talk about um, a credit rating, right? right? So you have a credit score. We've kind of grown up that way, but really, it's like it's like that on steroids. So you not not just have a credit score that says, "Okay, this guy, Chris Eelman, spends and saves and pays his bills," so he got you know his score of whatever seven fifty or eight hundred or something like that. It's it's a social credit score. You have a, a credit score. There's a portfolio with your name on it somewhere in government cyber world that scores you and um, penalizes you, blesses you and penalizes you based upon your score.
0: Now, some of that actually sounds genius to me. I shouldn't say that people (laughs) probably (laughs) scold me, but part of that as a, a, you know, if we're going to invest money and you want to make sure you're investing it reasonably. And I would probably do a, some type of a social credit score on my own <laughs> friends, <laughs> gauging whether I lend tools out to them or something sure, like that. Sure. But uh, anyways, we'll talk about that more later. Is this the first time in history that this kind of idea has come up, or has we, like, I was doing a little bit of research before, but have we seen this before China?
1: Well, in Canada, back in I think the 1930s, there were like Baptist ministers in Alberta, Christian ministers in Alberta, that were uh, suggesting there was actually the social credit party in Canada, which was around. I remember as a kid, my grandfather talking about this, but um, the, it was sort of this utopian idea that people could, uh, we wanted to get society to a point where everybody sort of lived under the proverbial apple tree and enjoyed the fruits of their labors. And uh, were able to, you know, walk through the vineyards of life and pluck the grapes at will. And, um, it was like this utopian vision of radical equality for everyone where you would share and there would sort of be guaranteed sources of income and this kind of thing. Now it sounds great on a very ideological level, almost like a return to Eden. It's completely absurd in a broken world Hmm. because someone has to control it all. And, the the main problem, I think, with theological problem with the social credit system is the assumption of benevolence from your leaders and assumption from benevolence from your rulers. They become sort of like the God that provides and watches over you. We see this in communism. You know, communism has a pretty bad name and rightly so, but historically when communism started to raise its ugly head in Europe, it looked pretty, it looked pleasing because when kings and czars were dominating and dictating uh, you know, every aspect of life, land use and so forth over their subjects, you had these people that were dirt poor, and this 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 preaching that went out, this communistic ideal of radical equality and all that kind of stuff. And we all share and we flatten the playing field. It sounds almost Christian-esque, you know, communism, community, mm-hmm. from the root word community. We're sharing. It sounds great. But It's not the biblical ideal. We'll talk about maybe some biblical ideals in a little bit. So these these, uh, philosophies on the surface sound good because you think about the pluses, right? You're basically rewarded for your good behavior. In China, you're rewarded for your good behavior. The minuses are you get totalitarian control. It raises the question, well, who determines what's good and bad behavior? Someone has to make that call. No one lives by grace. They live by legalism. Because mm-hmm. you have to always measure up to a standard in order to get. So you basically rob people of any motivation to be motivated by charity or uh, divine ideals or biblical values. Instead, you're motivated by performance, which leads to legalism. Uh, it can be for sure in China, but you can be manipulated by it. Like if you want that, if you want this, little Johnny, you have to do this. Right? So there's a manipulative aspect, and that leads to brainlessness and lack of responsibility, lack of thinking through the issues. You sort of start to act robotic. And also, you're, you're not allowed to speak out because if the government says, well, part of the social credit system in China is, well, you can't criticize us. Well, then they get to do whatever they want. No one can criticize them because no one wants to be penalized. And you know they're doing it through nefarious means, too. You have facial recognition technology, digital tracking algorithms, you, you have no privacy and and again, you think like when it's when the um, the ideas rolled out, a better, more functioning society, but then tied to that as all those controls and uh, you know, Big brother overseeing all that, that's where the danger is. So if you think about it, like in Christianity there's a certain social credit system where God calls us to certain ideals and standards and beliefs, and we get quote unquote credit for it but but the difference between Christianity and these secular theories is god is the one that gives grace god is the one that sustains and enables us to act properly so we didn't even get the credit for it so we're we're not legalistic we're relying upon grace even for our ability to do this and the god that we serve actually is benevolent mm-hmm. whereas the communistic government of the People's Party of China isn't that interesting sidebar. They're called the People's Party of China, you know. It's 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 um, manipulative. It's supposed to be for the people, but it's really just for the government. They they are not benevolent, but our true and living God is. So, um, yeah. So it's it's the social credit system is alive and well and growing in China, and then there's this like economic form of uh, social credit that you know, it dates back almost a hundred years ago in Canada.
0: And so we see that this has arisen out of a response to a serious problem. Uh, Just as you mentioned, communism comes in as the solution to a problem. Right. Uh, And so we see today, probably I'm guessing based on the topic of our conversation, there's a problem. And now this is the social credit system uh, is maybe being introduced to solve some problems today what would you see today where there's evidence of maybe a social credit system aside from a credit score for your uh by you know buying a vehicle um what are some ways you're maybe seeing that come in today so one of one of the things if i could just maybe make a
1: side statement it's more more of a foundational statement and come back to your direct question i was just thinking about it as you're asking that question is that this is why uh this is why in any country that does not have a Bible and the law of God and the word of God to guide and direct its policies, its politics, its education, its law, people will make up systems that they think will work to address needs. And they may be motivated by a degree of benevolence or love for their neighbor. But apart from running them through the filter of God's word, they always end up to be disasters. So... Um, one, one example, well, I'll, I'll give a couple examples. So the one one example is this whole idea of um, being rewarded in our country, in Canada, with opportunities based upon, for example, your sexual preferences. So one young man in our church, a grade 12 student, just received an email this week from the Catholic high school secondary school that he attends and it was a notice that in Ontario which is our province uh, a student who's 17 going on to post secondary college programs can receive a 35 up to a $3500 scholarship sorry 17 students can receive uh, up to a $3500 scholarship if they are gay, trans, bi, two-spirited, et cetera. So think about that. Historically, we gave out academic scholarships based upon your GPA, your grade, how good of a student you were, how competent you were in your particular discipline or area of interest. Now we're giving them out based upon who you have sex with. Because, so now we have money literally being distributed and opportunities being distributed based upon A combination of your ideology, because we all see the ideological promotion in that, and your sexual orientation. Now, even LGBTQ people should be repulsed by that, that they get financial credit, that they get sort of a step up, a leg up, if you will, over and above their heterosexual colleague simply because of their sexual, as we say, orientation. So notwithstanding a discussion we could have about the the sinful nature of those acts, this is an example of getting a form of credit, getting a form of social and economic recognition based upon your quote unquote performance. And in this case, it's your sexual performance, your sexual orientation. So that, That is increasingly becoming the case. And this is what concerns many of us, that ideologies that are judged to be proper and right and respectful and modern and all that kind of stuff by our government, Mm -hmm. they're giving people opportunities based upon that. So this is the problem even with equal opportunity hiring. You identify an issue. Okay, you don't want ethnic minorities to be left out of the hiring process so then you start to legislate well if you're this color or this gender or whatever you get a leg up over other people the 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 notion behind these things so where where there's like maybe a a little tinge of morality behind these things is they're they're trying to say well we don't want to leave people out we don't want to depreciate people based on um their sexuality or their skin color all that. So there's like this little uh, fragment of benevolence there. But being that God's word is not recognized, God's word – and I know like being preferred because of a racial issue is very different than being preferred Mm -hmm. because of a sexual issue. I I clearly understand Mm -hmm. that. But there's this notion that – or I should say these notions are rooted in an absence of thoughtfulness and an absence of consideration for how God would have us handle these things. And you know God of course um would in fact penalize us if we're committing sexual sins. Certainly wouldn't advocate even if it was a morally neutral issue like race that a person would be given special favors or lack thereof mm-hmm. because of their race. So a person should not be discriminated against because they're a minority, nor should a person be given extra and special favors just because they're a minority. A person should not be cast aside because they're female, nor should a person be elevated just because they're female. Um, So, I kind of maybe went off on a bit of a bunny trail there, but we see this as an example of you getting a certain social or financial benefit because of your sexual orientation.
0: And we do see it's it's the tendency of human nature. There's a problem and they swing to the opposite extreme, right? So let's say somebody has been discriminated against or a group right. of people has been discriminated against and the solution is discrimination of a different sort in the opposite direction. Um, And obviously that's not right. Not only that, but it's so inconsistent
1: where it's really driven more by what's popular in the moment. So we have, I know this isn't a conversation about racism, but there are uh, all sorts of examples of different, I don't. I don't. I don't think of human beings in terms of races. I think of them as we've talked before about ethnoi, right? The mm-hmm. different ethnic groups. But there is all different ethnic groups or linguistic groups that are ridiculed or discriminated against just because of their ethnicity. We all know that. That's been going on since the beginning of time. I think, at least since you know the Tower of Babel. But. At different points in time, it's like, oh, well, it's, it's popular to support this group and this group, but not this group, this group, this group, this group, this group, and this group. So we, we tend not to, we tend to be driven more by, well, it's, it's, it's popular right now to jump on this bandwagon or that bandwagon, but we're not really, we're not really thinking about systematic racial inequality. We're, we're thinking about very selective systematic racial inequality inequality as an example.
0: Mm -hmm. So let's get it back to the social credit system. Uh, We see maybe even we, I don't, I don't almost want to bring this up, but we might even see this in the future with vaccines and vaccine passports could be used as a social credit tool. Well,
1: Um, they already are. I mean, in a certain respect with, with vaccines and again, notwithstanding, okay. I would just say to my listeners, you, you need to do your research. You need to prayerfully discern with your physician and common sense and what's going on in the world, your choice uh, with regard to the vaccination schedules. They're not being forced on anybody, but they're most definitely being coerced. And I just sense, I hope I'm wrong about this. Listener, I hope I'm wrong about this. I sense that there's going to be a lot of bullying and shaming for those that may opt out. If certain quotas and percentages aren't being met, because the narrative will become, well, hey, you are holding back the rest of us. Shame on you. Um,
0: But um, what was the question again? Just in terms of like, that's like a example of social yeah. credit. Yeah. Or it could be where it's, you know, certain employers may say you aren't able to, uh, we're not going to employ you if you aren't vaccinated. Right. Yeah. Um, even and there's always portion- a reason
1: for it, right? We don't want to kill people. We don't want the virus spread, all that kind of stuff but it still is a form of totalitarianism whereby you are being controlled by a state that believes they have a better understanding of how you should act than you do. And um, ultimately you're the one that has to reap the consequences either for the better or for worst, for your medical decisions. They're not gonna take responsibility for that, but there's coercion there and we should resist that kind of coercion.
0: Hmm. So I know you recently have come across uh, some research the Canada beyond 150, um, and I know there's some very interesting conversations there surrounding debt uh, and some of the discussion there. So maybe we can kind of dive into that and explain that to our listeners and how that might relate to this social credit discussion. Sure. Yeah, so there's this study.
1: It's it's not uh, like something the government of Canada has approved but it was commissioned by a couple of agencies connected with the government of Canada. So the, the Privy Council office, which basically supports the, P, the prime minister. Obviously the prime minister doesn't know everything. So he has these various offices and think tanks that do work for him and his office. So the Privy Council, and then another one called the um, Policy Horizons Canada, which is like a kind of a futuristic think tank. Like where do we think things are going to go and how do we respond accordingly? So this document... Which um, I believe you told me was published in 2018, but I just saw it recently is looking at some of the trends, the things we're seeing in Canada, and then proposing some new paradigms, shall we say, or new responses to those those um, uh, trends or those movements or the trajectory, if you will, of Canada as it pertains to economics, and these. Issues are not disconnected from theology, uh, like, for example, a robust anthropology, a theology of man. And they're not disconnected from a robust theology proper, a, a, a good, solid theology of the lordship of Christ. So, for example, in the scriptures, the scriptures in our anthropology, our doctrine of man, promotes and supports for example, the need to appreciate and take Sabbath rest. So we're human beings; we need to take Sabbath rest. It also promote promotes a robust theology of work. That work is redemptive. That we are called to work. Where the the Christian vision is not sitting around in a with a harp in hand, just you know, plucking it on a cloud, drinking pina coladas. We are we are creatures of the the earth, and we are called to work. So in um, 1 Timothy 5.8, it says, He who does not provide for his own is worse than an infidel. So we work in order to provide for our own. And if we don't work to provide for our own, and we let our own, meaning our family members, suffer, we're sinning. Or in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, it says, If a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. So if you just choose, I'm not going to work, so I'm going to live off the system, you're sinning. And preachers don't want to preach that, but it's true. If you don't work, you're sinning. So the, the biblical vision is rest, one day of rest, six days of work, not six days of rest, one day of work. By the way, even retirees have to think about this because the biblical vision is not, oh, once I hit 65, I just re- I have seven days of Sabbath every week. It's okay to rest from a paycheck and to slow down and all that, but we're all built to work, to work, 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 in some way, shape, or form, not be workaholics, but to work. So that… I'm sort of mentioning that as a backdrop because that has to factor into our understanding of how, how Christians should respond to economic issues. We're called to work. And then a robust theology proper, which says Christ is king, God is supreme, God is a benevolent ruler, God is good, everything he mandates is good. It's for his ultimate glory and our ultimate good. That all has to come in as well. So we can't say well, the biblical vision is for us to stop working and everyone just to sit under the proverbial apple tree and enjoy the fruits of our labor or walk through the vineyard and pluck the grapes. Nor should we say that, well, I trust the government. They're, they're benevolent. They, they can figure it out. No, they can't. Like apart from God's law and God's ultimate rule being recognized, they'll always mess it up. So the, the document, the section on like debt and capital and wealth is... Addressing things like the access economy and it's addressing things like the, the rise in debt. And the big concern is there's just a sense that wages aren't keeping up with, for example, land prices. Wages aren't keeping up with the ability to buy a house. We have young people in our own church. It's like inflation, the, the inflated value of homes is rising faster than you could possibly save up even a down payment. Mm-hmm. So if you're like, oh, I got my $20,000 saved up for a down payment, ah, oh, Houses just went up another 100 grand. Now I need 30,000. Oh, now they just went up another 100. I can't even save up that fast. So that's a problem. So it's acknowledging that. It's acknowledging the fact that a lot of people are working on their own, that jobs, people working from home, that people tend to be independent contractors more and more. And all of these things taking place in our country, the rise in the value of commodities, which affects house prices, and the movement away from like traditional long term, you know, I'm gonna spend the next thirty years working at Chrysler kind of jobs to, oh, well, i have an independent contractor, I hop, skip, and jump around between employees, employers, affects people's ability to get ahead. Mm-hmm. So the the document is meant to acknowledge that things are changing in society, technological practices are changing, um social practices are changing and wages aren't keeping up with the rise in commodities. So it's, it's basically giving out, it's, it's making observations of trends in culture and then providing some potential alternatives. So, um, you know, we've, we've just kind of heard this terminology of access technology. And um, or an access economy. So part of it is is this idea that in the traditional economy, so you guys own a home and right. I own a home, and you get a couple vehicles and I get a couple vehicles, and you got a lawnmower and I get a lawnmower, and you have a chainsaw and I have a chainsaw. But maybe an access economy would be better. They're suggesting, or it's not even that this group is suggesting it. They're acknowledging this. So it's
0: yeah, it's already happening, right?
1: Yeah. It's happening. So it's kind of happening. So people, it's like Airbnb, right? We're like renting out space for people. Or you can maybe go downtown Windsor and rent an Mm -hmm. e-bike. I think my daughter and her fiance did that the other day. They rented an e-bike and rode around on it. And then you just kind of park it back and good to go. And it's been around
0: for years, like even things like, well, or we've seen it like you used to buy DVDs. Now you have a streaming service, mm. right? You used to buy music or a record or something. Now you pay $10 a month and you get Apple music.
1: Yeah. So instead of me, so my, my youngest brother has this massive collection of DVDs, right? And he would buy all these DVDs, watch. Now he ha- he has a movie in his house, sit on the shelf. He's watched it once, maybe twice. That's it. Right. So this idea of the online streaming is in a sense, you're, it sounds kind of weird, but it it's like you're renting the movie. Mm -hmm. You don't own it, you rent it. I know you don't ever really own the movie because it's copyrighted, but you don't rent something, you don't own a physical copy of it. You borrow essentially for a fee that movie and then it disappears. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And we're seeing it like Uber or yeah, like Uber, you can use your vehicle, uh, Airbnb or all kinds of things where it's moving away from owning to accessing that kind of thing. So how's that change with the social credit stuff?
1: Well, the, the idea is, is that as wages don't keep up with costs, that Canadians are going to have the inability to access the things that they need to actually build wealth. And they would define wealth like on the traditional grounds of, okay, the the dream is to own a home, to own land, to own a car. They're basically saying there's a, there's going to be a shift in culture. So, your status, your wealth is not going to be defined by what you own, but more by what you have access to. So you kind of have to wrap your mind around that a little bit. We, we've we sort of been trained to think that you accumulate wealth. We have wealth management consultants. You want to get a higher paycheck. You want to accumulate things. You want to buy the boat, the car, the whatever, right? And... We have to then think of things differently, they're suggesting, in that it's almost like um, like one of the terms they have in this document is the individual may no longer own their lifestyle. They'll effectively rent it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just kind of a little, a little strange different. to think of. It's interesting. Yeah. So instead of owning the things that give you the lifestyle you want, the ability to travel or have housing, you essentially rent it. That's the suggestion. They're just suggesting things are moving in that direction. So they're this idea of the access to things and goods and services will displace traditional ownership. Okay. Now, um, the question is how do you access that stuff, right? And these are some of the questions that are not fully answered. And who really, really owns it then, right, right? So someone has to own it in order for you to access it. So who who owns who actually owns the house? Well, you either have everybody has something they own that they rent out, which is going to be very hard to flatline at all. So you own, a, let's say, two hundred thousand dollars worth of goods, and you can never own more than that. And I own two hundred thousand dollars worth of goods, but they're different goods. And the next guy owns two hundred thousand dollars worth of goods, and we all sort of have the same amount of ownership, but we have to access other people's goods in order to survive. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how you police that or monitor that or stop people from coercing others if it's a good that they really need. This is where the sin nature kind of messes the whole system up. But mm-hmm. it could move in that direction, or or the state owns it, which would be scary. That's basically communism. Mm-hmm. Or you have the accumulation of wealth into an even smaller number of people. So you could have any of those scenarios. Someone has to ultimately, in a sense, own it, um, even if it's not ownership in the traditional sense. So social credit then gives you, could give you access to those things. So now, now you might have a situation where either the state owns it very wealthy people own it, or we all own a little bit of something. But in order to access it, no matter who owns it, you have to have social credit.
0: Right. So that would be almost similar. Like I guess Uber has this, um, you know, rate your driver, rate your customer thing. And so if your customer rating gets terrible, you won't be able to get yeah. rides. Yeah. So, but if you don't yeah. own a car and your customer rating's terrible, you have no way to get it around. Well, it's, we're creating
1: almost this culture where there's all this anonymous rating stuff going on, anyway, right? Like on our on the website, we get rating some people who haven't even been to our church. Like it's just this ra- anonymous, the the angry public or the gleeful public likes this service or that church or or your behavior means you can go back and rent another or get another Uber ride or whatever mm-hmm. it might be, right? So these things all like are. In a certain sense, helpful, and then all, all of a sudden we're like, "Oh, do we create an animal here?" Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> kind of like Facebook algorithms, right? <laughs> they like promote hopefully the content you want to see, but then all of a sudden they can be turned on you, so that now you are basically silenced without even knowing you are silenced. So, what what
1: uh, um, students of this these movements have acknowledged is that you know there is a good and bad, right? Because your social credit can be make you more vulnerable, or it could actually rescue you from inequality and right. dishonorable treatment.
0: Um, and kind of allows for a way for people to get ahead who would have been disadvantaged before. Is yes. that right?
1: Yeah. It also so it allows those that um, may be historically disadvantaged through no fault of their own to get ahead, but it also. Pulls back those that may just have the wherewithal and the determination, the skills and the gifts to just naturally get ahead. So, when I'll just make this sidebar comment: it's interesting that in classical evolutionary theory, the survival of the fittest is built into all that. Like the the strongest lion becomes the father of the next generation. You know the the strongest bull elephant sires the next generation of elephants, and that's how you 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 um, maintain the, the species. And um, secularists believe we're basically animals, products of random forces, but they're very upset with the idea of the stronger getting ahead, right? They, they can't stand the idea of the stronger, the more skilled, the smarter, the more athletic getting ahead. So we're always trying to like equal the playing field and there's a moral aspect to that. Now the scriptures, and again, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but the scriptures Mitigate against that by calling us to, for example, care for the proverbial widow, the orphan. If the church and the people of God are functioning properly, the disadvantaged are actually cared for. But it doesn't mean the Scripture is not like anti wealth, anti some are stronger than others, anti-leadership, anti leadership, um, anti power. Mm-hmm. But it's all it's all controlled and hemmed in by a strong ethic of love for God and love for neighbor. Mm-hmm.
0: With a recognition, too, that the problem of that sin is caused will never be solved this side of heaven. Yes, so. this is
1: why the utopian vision of the you know, 1930s Alberta preachers is wrongheaded. Mm-hmm. That um, they're relying upon, essentially, a godless state, by the way. That's another discussion. But they're relying upon a godless state to bring in... This utopian vision of equality. And we should push for true equality, but equality isn't attainable by laws that control behavior. It's by submission to God's law and also the need for grace. Mm -hmm. So even if you are, even if you have like an optimistic eschatology or if you have kind of this idealistic vision of the future, That is not attainable merely by better legal structures, better educational structures, better churches. That's legalism, Mm -hmm. right? That's if we do this, we get this. Mm -hmm. The Christian is called to live by grace. So we always need to acknowledge God's grace and call upon God to move in the moment, in the legal structure, in the educational system, so that even if we're successful and moving toward a more utopian future, God gets the credit for, and it's not a humanistic, a humanistically
0: right. driven trajectory. It's a divinely empowered trajectory. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense, especially even as a Christian. I can get caught up in the idea of seeing the problems in the world and say, "Well, education's the salvation. We just need to educate better people better." Or, you know, mandated generosity is the salvation. Or, you know equal opportunities is the salvation. And none of those ultimately, well, there may be good parts to part, like good education is helpful. Equal opportunities is good. Um, and certainly we want to lobby for that or ask for that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're not going to find ultimate salvation in it. Was there well, anything so, else?
1: Sorry, Well, I was just saying there's one other thing. There's a theology of blessing. You know, God, God doesn't choose to bless everyone equally in this life, he, people might bristle at that because they have this radical fairness doctrine, but really it's 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 about stewardship. So mm-hmm. God blesses as a reward for those that have been faithful. But even if you got two, ten faithful people that have been equally faithful to God, God may steward them from a human perspective different amounts of wealth, you know, different talents. Ten talents here, one talent here, and so it is, um. It's uh, we got to get away from this like automatic kind of view of risk uh, of um, uh, work and reward or ministry and reward Mm -hmm. or fix our education system and this is what we get or fix our legal courts and this is what we get. It has to be undergirded by grace, and it also we also have to acknowledge and all that blessing. So there, there never will be in this life absolute equality. Because God doesn't guarantee that. God does not give the same amount of grace to every person, nor does God give the same amount of blessing in this life to every person. He just doesn't. And those are for his own purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean that God is um, you know, mean or arbitrary, but he dispenses things in a different way and tests and
0: shapes us as stewards
1: differently.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And we even see that, the parable of the talents. One gets one, three, five, et cetera. Uh, so, yeah. Did you want to continue with that Canada 150 document? Did yeah, so I just kind of
1: want people to be a little bit familiar with it. So they have, they kind of look at these trends and then they're suggesting some implications for future policies. So um, I'm not going to hit them all, but they, um, they're suggesting that uh, real estate growth, Will continue to the, the notion that real estate growth will continue to support Canadians in their old age is farcical. It's not going to happen. So, um, because home ownership is a little more challenging, they're suggesting more of a a shared shared economy. So, sharing of houses, people co-housing together. I'm not really sure how that's going to work practically speaking, and that home ownership will decline. They're stating as a cultural value and asset. Obviously this raises a lot of questions again, well, who owns the property? How do you provide that much housing? Who, who, who guarantees that housing, who cares for that housing, you know, how do diverse groups of people live in the same place and how is that helpful? Right? So it raises all those questions. Like, couldn't we, couldn't we maybe consider opening up more land or creating fewer hurdles for people? I mean, you try to build a house and you get tens of thousands of dollars of permits. Uh, and all these economic and environmental studies that have to be done, like maybe that would be a better solution to make housing more affordable. Mm. But it doesn't seem to be addressing those root issues. It's it's just sort of pushing people almost into this communal-type living. Um, They're also challenging the – this is interesting. They're challenging the assumption that Canadians will be able to build their capital from their wages. So we all build capital traditionally – in our lives, but they're saying, no, that's not going to be possible. Basically, the cost of commodities is going to outpace wages. So this is where this universal income stuff comes in, that the the, the government will provide you with a basic universal income so that you have enough to get by on. Well, we all know how that's going to go. First of all, where right. does that money come from? Right. Either manufactured, it means nothing, or someone else has to work for it. Uh also it deincentivizes work. So a lot of people can would just say as they do now that live generationally off of, let's say, social welfare, then I don't need to work. So that's a direct violation of if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat mm-hmm. in the scriptures. So more they're suggesting that more Canadians will live on fixed incomes. Well, that's that is sort of the communistic ideal where everyone sort of gets more or less paid the same, whether you're a physician or a uh, a chimney sweep, you know, you, you get the same wage. So it, it, de-incentivizes, uh, advanced education, unless you push people into advanced education by penalizing them into it, which mm-hmm. again, then is living by legalistic code rather than grace. Mm-hmm. And when you live by legalism, we know there's no joy and life becomes unpleasurable and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then there's the, um, uh, there's a couple other points here. One of them is, uh, uh the fifth one, I'll jump a couple, is that cash-based economy is probably going to go away. Mm. So instead, you have like digital wallets and cryptocurrencies and all that kind of stuff, which we already do kind of see with online banking mm-hmm. and cryptocurrencies. Now, this has some unique problems because the this whole eschatological notion of, you know, being controlled in order to buy and sell. Well, that's that. Now you don't have. Now you don't have like with cash, which of course represents hard assets, but with cash, it's it's like it's it's a nameless note. I might have Queen Elizabeth II's name on it, but it if I say to you. you, yeah, if I say to you, hey man, I I want to buy um I don't know whatever it might be a weed whacker from you, mm-hmm. you know, here's fifty bucks. Well. We don't think about it, but it's not trackable. It's just a, a, an exchange between you and I as two liberty-loving, free individuals that happen to know each other. Mm-hmm. But if I have to then transfer it to you in digital form, well, then it's trackable. It's traceable. Mm-hmm. And there's grave concerns about what, what people do with that information and how that's traced and ultimately taxed and, and, and so forth and so on. So it's those controls that that concern us and, and I would say even scare us a little bit. It's, those, it's a movement away from the idea of individual soul liberty and freedom of movement, freedom of decisions to – this radical sort of surveillance type culture where you know everything we do. Now we're already kind of in that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I want to acknowledge we're already in it. We're in it much more now than we were in the 1980s. There's video cameras everywhere. We're constantly on our cell phones. We have the location services turned on. They know where we're at. We do digital banking, online banking. We have our debit cards, our credit cards. Our Fitbits are telling them our
0: heartbeat (laughs) (laughs) day by day.
1: Yeah. And, it, we're just constantly connected, but this is like taking it to the next level. And again, who's responsible for this? Well, mostly us, mostly the consumer, mm-hmm. mostly the, the well-meaning Christian that wants that little extra convenience. So that, that next app, that next point of connection. Um. So, the, you know, the the state would suggest that this helps people that are disadvantaged and marginalized, like indigenous communities, and so forth and so on. It sort of um, destigmatizes those that are not as wealthy. So that, again, there's all this qu- quasi morality connected to it um, that makes it palatable. I can guarantee you, Christian preachers will think this is great. Mm-hmm. Some Christian preachers. So, I,
0: but it should concern us. I was going to say, it, it should concern us. The issues concern us. Maybe, maybe now is a good time to switch to, like, what's a biblical look at that? Or I don't know if you had some more you wanted to cover first. But, like, we do have an issue. This is the world's solution. We're saying the world's solution has a lot of problems.
1: Yeah. So, to summarize the world's solution, the world, the world identifies a problem inequality, lack of access, the rise of commodities, wage issues. Okay, so it identifies the problem and it tries to come up with a fix. And if you take pages and pages and pages of these kinds of documents that have been written and provided for us, essentially, okay, essentially at the end of the day, if you, if I just put it into like one sentence, the solution that this, that, the world offers is give the state absolute control over your life and you will benefit from it and I will benefit from it and everyone else will benefit from it. That sounds great, but we know that's not how it works in a fallen world. Mm -hmm. So the biblical response for Kind of a biblical model of what I would call life governance, how to govern your own life, is uh, kind of threefold. So we, the one would be we have to bring people back to this Edenic creational notion that God is king. Mm-hmm. He is the only truly benevolent king. I might be benevolent at times. I reflect his image over the people I lead. But I'm never purely benevolent. I'm a sin-riddled creature. So we have to bring people and nations and households and churches back to an acknowledgement of the absolute supremacy and kingship of God manifested through Christ over our lives. The second thing that we need to acknowledge is in in a fallen world then, what are God's ideals in terms of how that sort of fleshes itself out? And this is where we have the old covenant scriptures, which are so foundational. You know, you're you're reading the fall in Genesis 3 and then kind of the systems and structures that God sets up thereafter. Um, The creational ideals that remain. And some theological points would include theocracy. So the, the, the ideal form of governance is a theocracy where... Uh, even kings and queens acknowledge they are representational rulers of the true king, mm-hmm. God. We see that in Israel. God wanted to rule the nation of Israel. They're like, oh, we have to have a king, you know, or we just can't, you know, this whole intangible king thing isn't working. Divine king isn't working for us. Give us a king. So God's like, okay, I'll give you a king. They're going to mess it up a lot, but ideally they're, they're going to represent me. And then we have the cycle of guys that did a little better and guys that did pretty badly. And we have David as the foreshadowing of the ultimate messianic king, who's Christ, who comes in the flesh in the form of a man and Mm -hmm. establishes that true theocratic notion of kingship. But we also have family units. So family units, we have these spheres of authority. So we have um, over families, we have authority. So I'm the head of my family. I'm not going to apologize for that. I'm responsible to lead my wife and my children until such time as they leave and cleave to another. The way societies function in an ideal situation, even in a broken world, is fathers lead their homes and their mm-hmm. wives. And that creates, that, that, that gets rid of a lot of the problems. Mm-hmm. And nations acknowledge the kingship of Christ, even if they have rulers. Those rulers acknowledge the ultimate law of God to govern them. That's, that's the best we can get in a fallen world until Jesus comes back and makes all things new. So the best we can get is kings and queens that acknowledge that they are theonomic rulers. They're 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 leading their nations under the under and through the law of God and the man of the household leads his family. So then you ask the question, well, yeah, but that's not the way the world is. Mm-hmm. Okay, so most rulers don't. So now we have this third tier, which is kind of like a theology of accommodation. So when we go to the New Testament, acknowledging that there's the Caesars of the world are abusive and not necessarily God-fearing, God reminds them of their job description in Romans 13. They are responsible for public justice, to wield the sword. They're God's deacon. He limits their authority to the exercise of public justice. And we are to acknowledge that. So even in a fallen world, if we have a secular or godless or atheistic or Islamic or Buddhist or whatever government, we should submit to those governments insofar as they wield the sword and exercise public justice over the land that they rule. Beyond that, they have no authority over the ministry and worship of the church and they have no authority over the direction that you take your family in. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't need to. I don't need to submit uh, the decisions that our church makes to the state any more than I need to submit the decisions I'm going to make for my wife or kids to the state mm-hmm. in in some misguided reading of Romans 13. And then among God's people, so God's household, pastors and elders rule the church. They the Bible actually, people don't generally use that term because it kind of sounds dictatorial, but let the elders who rule well be worthy mm-hmm. of double honor. That's biblical. So we rule, we lead, we oversee the church. So um, that, that mo- those models, so I, I mentioned like the Edenic model, sort of the old covenantal model in, in a theocratic nation, and then sort of that accommodative model if you're living in a culture that does not acknowledge the supremacy of God it still limits the government's role it still promotes the role of a husband over his family and pastors over the church so how do we fix how do we fix the world well ultimately we got to wait wait for the eternal kingdom but the best we can do in the in the here and now is train men to lead their households properly Amen. train pastors to lead their churches properly and train kings, queens, presidents, and prime ministers to lead their nations properly. And that's what we push for. And it's not a legalistic thing where just do this and you get this. It's do this, do this, do this, but also pray and rely upon God's grace to undergird it and to make it happen. That's what we're aiming for. That's what that We should be preaching this. We should be teaching this. We should be politicking for this. We should be voting for this. This is what we're pushing for. This is what we're aiming for. And some cultures and contexts are so backwards things like that's an impossible vision, but that's what we're pushing for. And that's what we need to continue to hold out as the,
0: the ideal. So is the social credit system, let's say, uh, let's say we get a king ruling uh, a, a godly king or godly prime minister, and they roll out a social credit system and the social credit values line up with the kingdom of God in terms of, they penalize people for blaspheming God's name. Uh, video cameras are in stores, and they catch people who steal. Uh, if people are in church and they, I don't know, they don't show up to church, they're penalized. I don't know, something like that. Yeah. Let's say there was something like that. Would the social credit system be of value, or would you is are you basically saying too much control, not good? We need the freedom, the grace. Kind well, of. Well, again, it sounds utopian,
1: but that would be to take the the job description of the the, the the man who leads his house, and the job description of the pastor, elder bishop of the local church, as well as public justice, and give it all to the state. So within a properly functioning state, you would have that kind of thing going on. But the government would still limit itself to public justice. The church would be free and clear from the state to preach and teach And again, we're not going to start using this word in our theology, but that social credit, that theological uh, moral law to its people, and that would be enforced on the level of the home. So one of the the arguments I've made throughout all these lockdowns is the state has taken absolute control over everything, and I Mm -hmm. think we need to divide up the job description again Mm -hmm. so that the ideal functioning state, we're always going to support this, the state in a fallen world— is responsible for public justice, to wield the sword, to punish the evildoer. Um, There therefore needs to be a basic acknowledgement of God's law for that to happen, You know, like killings wrong, stealings wrong, this sort of thing. There needs to be a a code derived from God's law, which allows the state to determine what's right and wrong, not based Mm -hmm. upon public vote, but what's right and wrong. But what we don't want is we don't want the state to also become your pastor, Mm -hmm. and we don't want the state to become— a child's father, mm-hmm. so we have this like divvying up of duties all with the goal to righteousness and peace and acknowledgement of divine rule, but not taking taking the job of the father or the pastor and giving that to the state as well.
0: Very good. I think that explained it finally, and I think I'd sunk in. So thanks, Aaron. (laughs) That's good. Uh, We'll continue these discussions, I'm sure, in future episodes. So make sure to tune in weekly to Leadership Now. As a a good reminder, we're now on the CJXC radio, uh, Canada's Constant Christian Companion, on 11 a.m. on Tuesdays and rebroadcast 11 p.m. on Thursdays, as well as on the Fight, Laugh, Feast network. Uh, You can download their app at the Fight, Laugh, Feast. Uh, You just look up Fight, Laugh, Feast. Uh, not as I mistakenly thought the fight laugh feast. <laughs> the fight laugh feast um, app and do that. and then make sure to subscribe and rate the podcast and we'll look forward to tuning in with you next week.